All right, guys, welcome to Salt City. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And so if you want to turn with me to chapter 8, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9. And over the past several weeks, we've been diving into the Sermon on the Mount. And if I were to summarize what Matthew says about the Sermon on the Mount, I would say we have been seeing and feeling and experiencing the authority of Jesus' words. And what we're looking at now is a transition in this Gospel of Matthew where we're going to be seeing that Jesus' actions or his works match the authority of his words. And there's something really powerful when someone's actions match their words that sort of doubles their authority. I remember I had this teacher in high school, and he was one of those rare teachers in high school that commanded authority. Like, you went into Mr. Brewer's class, and you knew you don't mess with Mr. Brewer. And that's because, first of all, he knew his subject cold. So every single class that you went to he did a 45-minute lecture from memory with no notes about United States history. And then, if you talked in his class, there was no warning. There was no, hey, cut that out. It was just, you're going straight to the principal's office or straight to the hallway. And he even would kick people out of his class and tell them to go to a different teacher because he didn't put up with that kind of stuff. And so when you were in Mr. Brewer's class, you didn't mess around. Because he commanded authority not just with his words, but also with his actions. And what we see from Jesus is that he commands the ultimate authority. So what we're going to see in this passage specifically is we see him walk off this, this mountain that he gave this sermon to, and he walks into a world where all hell is breaking loose, and we see that Jesus is the authority even when all hell is breaking loose. And so what we're going to see in this passage is sort of a survey, and we're going to see Jesus defeat disease, nature, demons, guilt, people's intentions, and death with 12 words. Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to see Jesus' authority over disease. Okay, so 8 verse 3 says this, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So Jesus walks off this mountain, and this leper was probably watching the Sermon on the Mount, and he sensed the authority of Jesus. And so he makes a beeline for Jesus, and he runs up to him, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus looks at this man who has this disease that people believed in that day was transferred through touch actually not true. But they believed that it was transferred through touch. And so everyone would have been backing up from this leper. Like this man is unclean. He would have been ceremonially and religiously 
unclean, and he would have been unclean because of the disease that he had. And Jesus, in compassion, stretches his hand out, touches him, says, I will, and then with two words, heals him from his disease. Be clean. And it's part of a larger section in Matthew, because what follows this story of this leper is Jesus doing something similar with someone who's paralyzed, the servant of a Gentile Roman commanding officer in the army, and heals them, not even by going, but from a distance, just with a word, heals this paralyzed servant. And then after that, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And what this section is showing is that Jesus not only has the ability to heal anyone of any disease at any time, in any way that he sees fit, but it also shows that Jesus has a particular compassion for outcasts. Because the first story shows that he has compassion for those who are religiously or ceremonially unclean, those who are outcasts. The second story shows that he has compassion on Gentiles, those who are on the outside looking into Judaism, those who are believed to have access to God. And the third story shows that he has particular compassion on women who tended to be social outcasts, unable to have certain jobs or certain rights in society. So Jesus, with two words, is able to heal this incredibly life-altering disease. Now, I want you to think about that in contrast to the moment that we're in and how everyone is trying to deal with COVID-19. Think how many words have been used by government officials, by local healthcare workers, by stay-at-home moms, by working dads, by working moms, to try to curb this disease. And think how widely unsuccessful we have been in trying to mitigate the spread of COVID. And think how it has ravaged our world. Say, on the whole, we would all say, we have not done a great job keeping COVID-19 from wrecking our lives. Why? Because we're not in control. But Jesus, in contrast to us, at any time could speak from heaven and solve the problem in an instant. Which starts to build this tension for us, and it'll be built throughout this entire passage, because I think we're going to be feeling two things. We're going to be feeling, wow, Jesus is the ultimate authority, but we're also going to be feeling, where is he, and why isn't he doing this? But for now, suffice it to say, he healed this man with two words. So we see his authority over disease. The second thing we see is his authority over nature. 8 verse 26. 
And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Do you remember the story? Jesus leads his disciples out onto a lake. They're on a little boat, and a windstorm arises, and Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat. And his disciples wake him up, and they're like, don't you care that we're going to die And Jesus gets up and says, what are you guys afraid of? And they're thinking, the big storm that's going to kill us. And Jesus, in another passage, simply says, peace, be still. And the storm goes silent. And a short time after this, the passage says that his disciples marveled. And they asked the question, what type of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And in another passage, it says that they stopped being afraid of the storm. And instead, they became afraid of Jesus. Jesus shows his command over nature. What a comfort. Have you ever been in a situation where you became terrified of the power of nature? I was remembering back to this uh, moment in my life. Melissa and I were pretty newly married, and we were living in Iowa at the time, and there was a hundred-year flood. And so it just started raining Early in the afternoon, it just kept raining, kept raining, kept raining, kept raining, kept raining, kept raining. And at some point in there, Melissa had to go to work, and she was going to work till midnight and then drive back. And I was watching the news, and there was all this flash flooding going on. I mean, just feet of water, and people were getting their cars stuck in the water. And I get this call from Melissa, and she's on her way home. She's like, it is really bad out here. Like, she's driving down, and like the you know, the front bumper of the car is in the water. And so she's driving and she's getting kind of scared and I'm getting kind of scared. And so in sort of this like, you know, romantic comedy moment of our life, like she's getting close to home and she's like, I'm, I'm scared, I'm scared, you know, I'm driving through the water. And I run outside bare feet with my shirt off and just shorts on. I don't know what I was going to do, but I was going to do something. And I see Melissa like come around the corner And she drives our vehicle and kind of dips down into the road. And the hood of the car went under the water. And she kind of came back out. And then we had this moment of like, I thought you were going to (laughs) die. No. But when you feel like you're in these moments where nature is overpowering you, whether it's like a tornado or it's an earthquake, or some of you might have been you know, involved in a hurricane coming toward you, it can feel like this has the power to ruin my life. And for Jesus, all he has to say is peace, be still, and he can calm any storm. He can stop any earthquake.
He can end any suffering that's caused by nature because he is the creator of the ends of the earth and it is not hard for him. See, the answer to the question, who is this man? The answer is, it's the God-man. God put human flesh on. He stood in a boat and he calmed a storm. So we see the authority of Jesus over nature. Thirdly, we see his authority over demons. Look at 8 verse 32. It says, and he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So there are these, these two guys who were well known in this community and they were demon possessed and they lived among the tombs. They were so well known and so terrifying that people stayed away from the road that was next to that cemetery because they didn't want to pass because they didn't want to confront these demon possessed men. Now the first thing that we've got to say about this story is it sounds really strange to our ears as Western people. Because we have so downplayed demonic activity so as to not believe in it. And I think what we've done is we've psychologized it. So we think because we can give some psychological explanation to different dysfunctions in people's lives, we think that we fully understand them. Now, am I saying that every time somebody has a mental uh, illness or psychological episode, that there's a demon behind that? No, but am I saying that sometimes there is demon possession or demonic activity behind what we call psychological illnesses? Yes, I am saying that. And so it's not that we always blame psychological things on demonic activity, but it's that sometimes we do blame those things on demonic activity. And so there's this demonic activity going on in these men's lives. And no one has been able to do anything about it. I mean, you can imagine being their friend before they were possessed by a demon or being part of their family and just seeing the effects of the demonic activity in their life, how it's ruined them, and they almost seem subhuman, and you don't know what to do about it. And Jesus comes into town, and he says one word, go. That's it. Takes Jesus one word. And the demons flood out of these two men into a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs run off of a cliff and are drowned in the water. Can you imagine being a person who saw that happen? Everyone went from being really afraid of the demon-possessed guys to being really afraid of Jesus. And they ask him to leave their city. Just get out of here, man. We don't have a category for this one. And they're all standing there completely stunned by what just happened. 
And here's what we realize in this moment. We, as Christians, are the furthest thing that you can be from dualists. See, a dualist believes that there are two equally powerful opposing forces in the universe. You've got God and you've got Satan. And what we're doing is we're waiting to see who is going to win in the end. What we believe is that this is the most unfair fight in history. Because all Jesus has to say is go. And Satan and his demonic forces must listen because Jesus is king, not Satan. So I remember watching high school basketball some. I grew up in Indiana. And I remember catching a game by this girl in Indiana high school basketball whose name was Shauna Zolman. She later played at the University of Tennessee. She played for a really small high school in Indiana called Wawa Sea High School. And this girl was like Steph Curry of Indiana girls high school basketball. So she would come up the floor and just pull up from like three feet beyond the three-point line and just bury three-pointers the whole game. Just score 30, 40, 50 points a game, something like that. And you knew going into every single one of her games that it was a completely unfair fight. She's, her team's going to win. There's no way that the other team is going to win because she is so far superior to the other team that it's not even a matchup. This is the ultimate example of that. It's not a fair fight. Jesus wins. So if you tend to be a person who is afraid of demonic activity or is afraid of unseen spiritual forces, come to Jesus. Because you are not strong enough to oppose those forces yourself, but Jesus can, he does, and he will. All he has to say is go. Okay, the fourth thing we see is Jesus' authority over guilt. Look at 9 verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So this is the famous story where these men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they open up a hole in the roof and they lower him down in the middle of this house and they ask Jesus if they would heal their friend of his paralysis. And Jesus gives a very surprising answer to their request. He looks at the man, and what you expect in the narrative is for Jesus to say, take heart, rise and walk. But that's not what he says first. He looks at him, and he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus gives us a window and an insight here into why he does what he does throughout his ministry. And what he shows us is that what we think we need is not what we most deeply need. See, all of us have come to church this morning, and there's things that we think we need. 
But the deepest need that we have is for our guilt to be forgiven. We have sinned against a holy God. God is unlike us. He has no imperfections and no faults. And we are guilty before him because we have broken his law and we have chosen to rebel against him. And every disease and every affliction and every psychological problem is owing back to this reality that we are being punished because of our real moral guilt before God. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the whole creation is in bondage to decay, according to Romans 8, as a result. And so the root problem of all dysfunction in the world is human sin. And what we need most is something that we generally don't even think we need. Forgiveness of sin. And Jesus is the sin forgiver. If he says that you're forgiven, you're forgiven. People often say this, but I just can't forgive myself. Here's the good news. You don't have to. Because your sin is ultimately against God. And so if God says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. So think about this even on a human level. Imagine that you are terminally ill. You're in the hospital. And you think to yourself, all I need is a cure to my disease so that I can be made well. That's what I need most. But imagine if your terminal illness leads you to be reconciled with somebody that you have relational brokenness with. So imagine if some family members that you haven't talked to in years came to the hospital to visit you and you were able to right past wrongs. Both of you were able to apologize to each other and there were tears and there was reconciliation you might even say to yourself, I'm glad I got this terminal illness because the forgiveness that you experience in that relationship would be such a burden off of you and such a relief to you that you might even say, it would be better to die of that terminal disease and have that relationship made right than to have never gotten the terminal disease at all and to have that relational brokenness still there. Because we all experience the guilt of our sin as a heavy burden on our shoulders. And Jesus is the sin forgiver. And on the basis of his death on the cross, what he has done for us by taking our sin on himself, by his authority, all you have to do is believe. 
And maybe you came to church this morning, or maybe you're tuning in online just to hear these words, not from me, but from the authority of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You came here for some other reason, but what you need to hear from Jesus is you're forgiven. You don't have to pay him back anymore. You don't have to hide your sin anymore. You don't have to act like you have it all together anymore. You don't have to work to earn your salvation. You don't have to pretend that you're somebody that you're not. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus has authority over our guilt. Number five, Jesus has authority over people. This is an amazing story. What Matthew does here is he inserts his own personal testimony into the narrative. 9 verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So you can imagine, Matthew is sitting at a tax booth, fully intent on doing what he always does at the tax booth, which is rip people off. He showed up ready to break the commandments of God for another day. He had no intention of going to the tax booth that morning and becoming a follower of Jesus by that night. He's fully intent on running away from God doing whatever he wants to do. He's a Jew who has sold out his people, is working for the government, and is skimming taxes off the top and has become incredibly wealthy by doing so. And he's sitting in his tax booth. Yeah, he's heard about Jesus. He doesn't really care. He heard about the Sermon on the Mount. He's heard about he's going around healing people. Maybe he's seen him from a distance. And Jesus walks by. And notice, Jesus doesn't pray for Matthew's salvation. Jesus doesn't look to God hopeful that God will save him. Jesus doesn't agonize. Jesus doesn't strain. Jesus doesn't win him over. Jesus doesn't offer him any money. Jesus doesn't paint a great vision for him of the future. Jesus gives him no incentive whatsoever to follow him. He simply just looks over at the tax booth, catches his eyes, and goes, follow me. And Matthew drops his livelihood, drops his security, drops his sin, drops his idolatry. In a word, he drops his life And the text simply says, and he followed him. Some of you came here this morning with no intention to follow Jesus. You came to make one of your friends happy. You came because you thought it was the right thing to do. You're fully intent on living whatever life that you wanted to live before you came here. And Jesus 
is about to say, follow me. And your life will be forever changed. And you can't do anything about it. Because when Jesus says, follow me, you follow him. He gives you an internal desire on the spot and changes you forever. And the evidence in Matthew's life is he wrote part of the Bible. He became such a fully devoted follower of Jesus that he became an apologist for Jesus. He used all of his technical skill that he had gained in accounting money and in chasing people down for their taxes and being this exacting person. And all of those things became tools in God's hand so that he could be a detailed accountant of the life and ministry of Jesus. And his life would no longer be about money and himself and doing his own thing, but his life would 100% become about the glory of King Jesus And it took two words for Jesus to make that happen. Jesus is not pining for people to follow him. He is not begging for people to follow him. Jesus makes people follow him. He is the authority. And that is an encouragement To those of you who are going to be seeing people at Thanksgiving who you would love to be followers of Jesus. And you've been praying for them and you've been asking Jesus to change them and you've been begging them and you've been strategizing how to share the good news about Jesus with them. And all of those things are good. But you have to know that what fundamentally changes the human heart is when Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, comes into that person's life and He simply says, follow me. And so what I'm asking you to do, if there's somebody in your life who you would love to come to know Jesus and you've been begging Jesus and you've been agonizing about it and you've been anxious about it, I want you to take your eyes off of what you can do and put your eyes on what Jesus can do and go into this Thanksgiving week with a bold confidence that Jesus can do what you cannot do. The pressure's off. Because we can't win anybody to Jesus. We can't affect people's eternal salvation with our words or our actions. Jesus is the ultimate decisive cause of salvation. And when he says, follow me, people follow him. And their lives are changed forever. So we see his authority over people. And finally... We see Jesus' authority over death. 9 verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Zero words. Jesus is making his way to this girl's house. She's young. She's died. People are mourning, crying. There's even people playing instruments, and there's wailing coming from the house. Jesus walks into 
the pre-funeral mourning into the visitation, and he gets everyone's attention in the crowd, and he says, hey guys, it's okay. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And everyone stops, they look at each other, and they start laughing. This guy is ridiculous. She's dead. Jesus says, hey guys, can you step outside real quick? You can imagine they kind of look around at each other like reluctantly, like should we do what he says? Okay, yeah, let's do what he says, it's Jesus. All right. They all step out. Jesus walks over to a dead little girl, grabs her by the hand, and wakes her up. To Jesus, death is like sleep. Now imagine if you went to somebody's house, and let's say you all had tickets to go to a concert or a sporting event or something like that, and the guy with the tickets in his back pocket is asleep, and you go in and your friends are like, we can't go to the concert, Jim's sleeping. You'd be like, guys, I know how to wake somebody up who's sleeping. You would feel no anxiety about that. No pressure, right? And he's like, no, guys, I got this. We can still go. And you would just walk back into the bedroom, and you'd maybe dump a bucket of water on Jim's face or you'd shake him. I mean, there's all different ways that you could do this, but there would be no stress. So you're like, okay, well. We can still go. I, I know how to get the tickets. I know how to wake somebody up. They're like, no way. You do? Yeah. Jim, let's go. You bring them out. Everyone's like, we can still go. No way. This is awesome. That's how Jesus felt walking into the room. No stress. No anxiety. He looks at our biggest human problem. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it's the one thing he uses no words to destroy. Let me show you my authority over death. Whenever I want to, I can say, get up to somebody, and they get up. Whether I want to touch them, or I want to use my words, or I want to do it from a distance, or I want to do it from heaven, death is no obstacle to me. All right, so we've established that Jesus has a different kind of authority than anyone we've ever encountered before. So here's the question I have. I hope you've been built to this point of tension by now. What is he doing then? If we're saying that Jesus has this type of authority, why isn't he destroying COVID? Why do earthquakes and tornadoes rock people's lives? Why are people possessed by demons and having all sorts of psychological and emotional problems that are influenced by Satan himself? Why are there so many people who are not followers of Jesus, who are doing whatever? Why are so many people around us dying and are we daily confronted 
with that reality? There's two possible answers in our minds. Either Jesus doesn't care or Jesus can't do anything about it. He has a lack of compassion or he has a lack of power. Which one is it? And what Matthew would say and what the whole Bible is witness to is that the answer is neither one because all of this in the gospel of Matthew is leading us to the ultimate statement of Jesus' care and the ultimate statement of Jesus' power. See, the ultimate statement in the Bible of Jesus' care is that he went to the cross for you. If you want to see Jesus' love on display for you, look at the cross. Because what the cross says is that Jesus took on the penalty for the brokenness of your sin, which has caused all of this brokenness in the world. He cares so much that he stretched himself out on the cross and substituted himself for you. And the reasons his arms were so wide is he was saying to you, I love you this much to die for you. And so we know that he cares. But we also know that he is the all-powerful God of creation. Because three days later, he rose from death. And his resurrection tells us that this was no mere mortal. This was the King of Kings. This was the Lord of Lords. This was God over all. The creator of everything. The authority over everyone. The undefeated Savior of the world. And so what is Jesus doing now? Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we look at the cross, we know that Jesus cares. We look at the resurrection, and we know that he is all-powerful. So why is life the way that it is right now? It's this. It's that the best possible life that you could live is a life of suffering with Jesus on your way to glory. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he can't do anything about it. It's that he has a perspective that you don't have, and that is the life in his footsteps is the best possible life. You see, the life that Jesus chose to live with all of the authority in the universe is the life that he's now asking you to live. A life of suffering on the way to glory. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's the response to this message. It is to cling to Jesus with a rugged faith in a very difficult time. It is to believe him that this is the best possible life. Yes, at times it is to beg him 
to heal people, to come in power into our lives. But at times, it is also to trust Him that He loves us even when all hell is breaking loose around us. May He give us wisdom to know when to trust His power and when to trust His care. But let's keep on going because what we cannot conclude is that Jesus has left the planet and that he's not here. What we must conclude is that he cares, that he's all-powerful, and that he is doing something in our world and in our lives that is beyond our comprehension, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Jesus, Thank you for this word. What a perfect word for us. In this moment in history where we feel like all hell is breaking loose, we feel like no one's in control. We feel like we don't know what we're doing. We feel like there's so much change, like the world is like shifting sand under our feet. And thank you for the rock of your word. Thank you for the glory of Jesus. Thank you for pointing us to his authority this morning. Would we be able to see him as greater than any of the things that we fear? Would we be able to see by faith, Jesus, that you are absolutely in control, that you know what you're doing, and that you're working out everything in our lives for our good and for your glory? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.